stories from around the corner. And around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're sharing a couple of pieces from iconic LGBTQI storytelling night, Queer Stories. Hosted and curated by Maeve Marsden, Queer Stories is a place where you'll find true stories told by queer and trans people from all over the country about their lives, loves, and losses. I actually had the privilege of speaking at Queer Stories in early 2021. The experience was so affirming, not just because it gave me the platform to share a part of my story, but because it allowed me to connect with my community. I remember specifically being backstage listening to the older lesbians talking about what it's like having children as a same-sex couple and realising that I've only ever read about that process. I'd never actually been in a space where lesbian parenting was just a topic of casual conversation. It was honestly pretty thrilling. Queer Stories is a really special show. Each story feels significant and lovely in its own way, and I'm really excited to share a couple of them in this week's episode. First, you're going to hear the aforementioned piece that I shared at Queer Stories. This is the story of the trials I went through as president of a university United Nations society. This week, Madhura Prakash, also known as Mads, is an activist formerly working with Plan International Australia and a drag king who performs under the name Manish Interest. Born in Sri Lanka and raised in Australia, she's spoken of her experiences as a queer brown woman on panels for organisations like Women's Agenda, and she was thrilled to share her story at Queer Stories Western Sydney. The moment I graduated from high school, I was determined to reinvent myself. After having a terrible time and trying to make myself as small as possible, I wanted to become the hot, successful, confident, straight woman that I had always wanted to be. (laughs) And I'd like to think I'm in the process of achieving some of these goals. One is a little harder than the others. And being the nerd that I am, I have to thank my experience with Model United Nations for this. (laughs) Model UN, henceforth referred to as MUN, changed my life's course. It was through my experience in MUN that I changed from an awkward, self-hating girl into that loud bitch that keeps shouting about human rights. I owe so many of my formational experiences to Mun. It was through Mun that I met the first boy that I'd cry over. It was tipsy on the cheapest rosé at a Mun social event that I texted one of my best friends to tell her that I'm queer. It was then through Mun that I met the first girl that I'd cry over. 
I'll admit, crying is kind of my thing. I once cried while watching Alvin and the Chipmunks 2, the squeakquel. <laughs> it wasn't one of my proudest moments, but Simon was getting bullied and Alvin was being a toxic cishet guy and he abandoned his brothers in their time of need and it got me. A lot of movies got me. A lot of books and TV shows too, and life in general. So then this conflict was created. On one hand, I was making a name for myself in the Australian MUN circuit, participating in and soon organizing the biggest conferences in the country. I was seen as intimidating, which is a pretty impressive feat for someone who stands at 153 centimeters tall. <laughs> But at the same time, I also had a crying episode at every single conference that I attended. Whether it was the delegate for the UK pushing a little too hard against refugee rights, or a guy on an organizing committee with me deciding he knew better about women's safety. Things would get me, but I'd move past them. Despite all of this, I worked my ass off and eventually became the president of my uni's UN society. I was thrilled. Everything seemed to be going right. But then, in January of my year as president, I had my first breakup. It was dramatic because it was me. <laughs> and because it was also my first lesbian breakup. She dumped me by text message minutes after we had been on a date. I was in pieces. This ended up being the last straw and the impetus for a massive depressive episode slash breakdown that was admittedly a long time coming. My deteriorating mental health was pretty badly hidden and the difficulties that came with being queer, Tamil and a woman in modern Australia had been building to their almost inevitable crescendo. Suffice to say, my ex made the right call. Soon, I spiralled, badly. I had trouble getting up and existing in the world. I was crying all the time, in bed, in class, in front of my dog. I actually have a little achievement to share with you all. I've cried on pretty much all forms of transport. <laughs> Bus, train, plane, ferry, Uber, taxi. I'm the queen of turning my entire head to stare earnestly out of a window in the hopes that people around me don't get too uncomfortable. <laughs> After bursting into tears and running out of the exam room of a public international law exam, I decided to take a break from uni. If she's not studying, can she even be president? Said one of the tall white boys on my team, just as I walked into the conference room for a UN society meeting. As a brown five foot tall woman, I was not unfamiliar with my authority being questioned and I brushed it off. Honestly, from the beginning of my presidency, I was dealing with people undermining me and it only got more intense the more I struggled. But I had to stick it out, right? 
You're a badass, Mads, everyone told me. I'd fought so hard and come so far and made everyone so impressed and proud. I couldn't possibly give up the presidency now. But I knew my team was rapidly losing faith and that I was not being a good president. So I quit. That's right. This isn't a story of a young woman looking with a sparkle in her eye at a poster of a scenic landscape with the caption, winners never quit and quitters never win, and then effortlessly overcoming her obstacles and seeing things through. It's a story of giving up. I guess those conservatives were right. An overly sensitive gay woman can't lead people. I mean, if she was the real UN Secretary General, she'd set off bombs in the US just because Kristen Stewart got married. She's not built for it. That's not how the world works. No, that's not right. Where do you think you are, Sky News? No. I was just having mental health problems and I didn't have a handle on it. Soon, I healed. I got on new meds and went to therapy and took my dog out for walks and got so much better. I will note that I was very lucky and had a family who I could live with and who supported me and who I am eternally grateful for. Eventually, I rejoined uni for the second semester and though it was rocky at times, by the end of that year, I felt whole again. I now spend my time as an activist working to try and make the world a better place and trying to create spaces so that queer brown girls like me don't have to have a year of breakdowns to come to terms with their identity. I've also spent time connecting with my queer identity and the queer community in a way that I never had before. I do this by making TikToks (laughs) (laughs) and by performing as a drag king. I've discovered that we are a community that celebrates emotions and crying episodes and being freaking dramatic. And here's the thing, I still cry. Life is hard and while I'm much more mentally healthy, I'm still me. And me is a crier. But it doesn't hinder me in any way. It doesn't make me bad at what I do. At the end of the day, I refuse to believe that you have to be stoic and impenetrable to be respected and successful. I know there is so much strength in being sensitive. I am an overly emotional person and I love that about myself. Our society would be better off if we ceased to see crying as this big weakness. My vulnerabilities make me a better, more empathetic person. My year of tears brought me my year of making positive impacts in people's lives. So maybe I'm a crybaby, but I'm also a freaking badass. That story was read by me at Queer Stories Western Sydney. Stay in the loop with all things all the best by signing up for our monthly newsletter. On the second last Wednesday of every month, receive a rundown on the latest episodes, info on upcoming events, giveaways, competitions, and free resources. Find the link to join in the show notes and on our website. 
allthebestradio.com. Up next, Babak shares their experiences of an eat, pray, love style trip to Hawaii that leads to many lessons about humans and queerness, just not the ones that they expected. A note that this story contains some sexual references. Babak Saeed is a writer, multidisciplinary artist, queer youth worker and community organiser of the Afghan diaspora. They have co-edited Archer magazine in the past and they're the co-editor of Un magazine's forthcoming issues 13.1 and 13.2. Their work has appeared in Kill Your Darlings, Black Girl Dangerous, Overland, The Lifted Brow, Peril and Vice and they've performed at Melbourne Writers Festival and the Emerging Writers Festival. They performed this story in Sydney and Melbourne. About a month before I finished my last semester of uni, I decided impulsively to buy tickets to Hawaii. Inspired by Julia Roberts' breathtaking performance in Eat, Pray, Love, (laughs) I wanted to nurture the white woman within and give myself some tender love and care. At the time, I was living in a decrepit share house in Parkville with a French guy I'd almost convinced myself I wasn't in love with and a gorgeous Filipina girl who would tiptoe up the stairs to his room a couple nights a week and have excruciatingly loud sex with him. But when you're 20, toxic dynamics like this seem perfectly natural. I was still young enough to think it inconceivable that the person I liked could like me back, or that someone liking me could warrant anything other than disgust. I submitted my final essay and boarded the plane to Hawaii that night. I was so relieved to be getting out to be going anywhere else. It didn't even strike me to wonder about the trivial practicalities of my holiday. I took some Valium and knocked myself out during the safety briefing. But things took a downward turn almost as soon as I arrived. In the drowsy post-flight delirium, I realized I didn't actually know where in Honolulu I was getting off the bus. When the confused bus driver did drop me off near some hostels, I foolishly left my wallet on board. Honestly, I still wasn't even remotely phased. This is how beautifully, tragically naive I was. I thought all I had to do was go seduce a hostel worker and they'd hook something up for me using bank transfer and IOU and it'd be totally chill. Except I started noticing that all the local hostels were weirdly booked out for the exact week of my stay. The only options were expensive hotel rooms at high-end resorts. The staff at the third hostel I walked to kindly informed me that every bed on the island was occupied for the Pipe Masters Grand Final Surfing Competition, the week-long tournament where surfing fans from across the world flood into this one specific Hawaiian island every year. They simply couldn't believe I hadn't heard about it. They, keep, they kept rephrasing the names of the title as though maybe I had just understood it differently. Like the master pipe with the surfing competition, tournament, grand, grand final. The Valium was starting to wear off. I had approximately 60 US dollars in my pocket after exchanging my Australian cash. No internet connection, nowhere to sleep, and no one to touch base with. Naturally, my initial reflex was to go to a cafe with Wi-Fi and log on to Grindr. (laughs) 
Surely another queer person close by would have some empathy and offer me a couch or lend me some money. It's not the ideal way to travel, don't get me wrong. But what's a blowjob in the greater scheme of a night with a meal in your belly and a roof over your head? When I was first coming out, an ordeal that saw me fumbling over almost every letter of the LGBT acronym for years, I had this idea every time I met another queer person that we had this transcendental connection, that we were allies through thick or thin. I'd be so excited and intimidated. Were they having more sex with me? Should we be having sex? Did they want to talk about being gay and share their entire life story? Turns out people didn't always want to do that, and I was genuinely surprised by the lack of help offered on Grindr. <laughs> As the cafe's closing time drew near, my messages became increasingly desperate. Like, please, random stranger, can I sleep at your house tonight? And people just started blocking me left, right, and center. I was starting to feel like charity workers trying to get your credit card information on Swanson Street. <laughs> so the cafe closes at sunset and my Wi-Fi connection drops out and I'm like, fuck. A random couple takes some pity on me and hands me the rest of their medical grade joint, which obviously didn't help with the anxiety. There I am on a beach with a suitcase, stoned and alone as it starts to rain. Turns out wet sand is no easier to wheel a suitcase across. <laughs> I felt like an eliminated contestant on Survivor. <laughs> Except there were no cameras and no one seemed to care and all the drama was happening inside my head. Where was Julia Roberts when I needed her? <laughs> At no point in this process did I ever stop to consider calling my parents to ask them for help. In my ethnic ass family, they would find the whole story utterly hilarious and I'd never live any of it down. <laughs> Humiliation hurt more than the discomfort of a rough night or three. Better to just find a quiet, dryish patch of sand, roll out my sleeping bag, try to enjoy the idyllic tropical conditions and get some shut eye. At some point in the dead of night, I opened my eyes to a bearded older man in a tattered flannel shirt shaking me awake. He's muttering under his breath and he reeks of alcohol. I'm terrified, of course. I barely have any money to offer him and no one in the world has any idea where I am. Hell, I don't even know where I am. He motions to the bottom portion of my sleeping bag using the flame from an electric lighter. Crawling over me are a pair of 10-inch-long centipedes, thick-bodied and dark-cold in colour. He brushes them off with a twig and tells me to follow him. He explains that I can't keep sleeping on the beach. As we near his encampment further inland behind a wall of trees and some dingy public bathrooms, he shows me the line of salt that repels the poisonous nocturnal bugs the island is famous for including giant centipedes, millipedes, spiders, and scorpions, which, of course, I would have learned all about if I had researched the island of Oahu at all. <laughs> there are a few others still awake around when I arrive, but mostly the mounds of bodies are motionless. Over the next couple of days, I enter this bizarre relationship with Tony, 
and his crew of homeless friends. Looking back, I'm still surprised at how unquestioned I was and how easily they welcomed me into their flow. Their daily rituals of reading Bible passages and science fiction texts aloud, with no mention of the irony. <laughs> Dumpster diving behind restaurants and supermarkets and going out swimming in the late afternoon, disrupting the tropical paradise vision of tourist Hawaii. Most of them are US veterans of various wars. Some are drug users and or mentally unwell. Some are queer, some have families, some don't. Tony and I would wait at the bus stop, sometimes for hours, until a friendly bus driver stopped for us and let us board for free. I remember him breaking down in tears at a public library one afternoon after I showed him Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, staring at clothes spinning in washing machines at laundromats, jumping over the back fences of holiday homes to use their trampolines. I'd be lying if I said it. I didn't find it confronting that he'd fought as a soldier in Afghanistan, likely murdering countless civilians that looked just like me, that could have been me in a slightly different world, that he would never be persecuted for his war crimes or even properly understand the extent of the damage he'd been complicit in causing. When I asked him about it, he told me America's abandonment of him and his post-traumatic stress disorder after returning from the war was its own form of retribution. Sympathy isn't exactly the word I would use, but somehow the grudge softened. He turned to drinking, which turned to drugs, which turned to some combination of bipolar and schizophrenia after coming back from his final deployment in Afghanistan. There were no mental health services for him, and his family in Ohio gave up on him decades ago. On one of the last days there, a bunch of us from the camp caught the bus to the north shore of the island to watch the final round of the surfing competition. It was so surreal, being among thousands of people from across the world, people of all ages, genders, races, and there I am in my crew of homeless, old, white male war veteran friends. I recognize beach bro white dudes from Grindr. Maybe they didn't recognize me. Maybe they did and ignored me anyway. Everyone crammed onto the same stretch of beach. All of us digging our asses into picturesque sands, watching tiny dark figures in the distance carving smooth lines in colossal waves for some reason. I lost contact with Tony and the others once I left the island. And I have since learned that I don't really have a lot in common with most gay people. And, and that's okay. I still wonder if we should be having sex, though. <laughs> you don't need much to be happy. Just some friends, some books, some kindness, and some salt. That story was shared by Babak Saeed, a writer, multidisciplinary artist, queer youth worker, and community organizer of the Afghan diaspora. The next Queer Stories live show is going to be at the Grand Electric in Redfern on the 3rd of August. I can confirm it is so much fun to be in the crowd at a Queer Stories show, so don't wait. Go get your tickets on the Mosh Ticks website. Just search Queer Stories. To learn more about Queer Stories or to listen to the podcast, you can head to queerstories.com.au.
All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mal Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.